So as you guys know, if you're part of our email system, um, the booths have been fighting COVID for a week and a half. So Jessica and the kids are doing well. Daniel started downhill again on Friday, which is why he is not with us this morning. So I'm going to pause and pray for them and uh, for our congregation in general and uh, for the sermon. Kids, have a great time downstairs. Go learn some good stuff. All right, let's pray. Father, thanks for the Thanks for the Booth family. Thank you for bringing them to us. Uh, it was a, a year ago yesterday that we officially welcomed them uh, here at our church. And uh, we just thank you for the blessing that they've been to our young people, to our music team, to our church in general. Pray that you would encourage them this morning, that you build them up. Pray that you'd be strengthening and uh, helping Daniel get strong and healthy again, that uh, he'd be able to get back to normal life soon. Lord, thank you for others who are fighting against illness or uh, just having a hard time right now. Would you encourage them? Would you help them to know how much you love them this morning? uh, Would you use us to love them too? So Lord, make us aware of the needs of your people, and then use us to meet those needs. Father, we come and and we open your word. We open our hearts to your word this morning. We ask that you would be teaching us, that you'd be instructing us, uh, changing us as your people. We're going to see the great love that you call us to, Lord. Would you make us uh, better lovers of your people. Would you help us to be following the example that you gave us, Lord Jesus, and how we are to love each other. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this morning we are going to see a, a tension, a, a, a gap between love and hate. And probably many of us in this room have experienced a time in our lives where we were shocked by hatred. Like, we even thought man, this, this person loves me, and I'm secure. And then like that love just seemed to turn to hatred on a dime. You know, where did that come from? And the truth is, sometimes what we think of is love is not really love, and sometimes it even turns out to be hate. We're going to look today in 1 John. We're going to be in chapter 3, and we're going to start with verse 10. So if you're Open in your Bibles, 1 John 3.10. If you've got a pew Bible, it's on page 1022. 1022. If you're looking in your own Bible, go to the back to Revelation and just work your way backwards through Jude 3rd, 2nd to 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. What we're going to do here in our series is we're going to see how John continues to draw circles back and back and back to specific themes. Over and over in the book of 1 John, we see the theme of abiding, of living in Christ. We see the theme of loving. Just, he just hits that over and over again. The connection to life. In fact, very clearly today we'll see the connection between love, loving people and how that helps us to be assured that we have life in Christ. And then also the idea of light. And uh, we're not going to deal with light today, but we're going to see that a few more times before we finish up 1 John. So we're going to look at 1 John chapter 3, verses 10 through 24. And uh, we, we actually dealt with 10 last week, but in order for things to make sense, we're just going to backtrack and catch this last couple of verses here. So 1 John 3, 10 through 24. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. 
For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Now, throughout the book of 1 John, love is central. He keeps coming back to that over and over again, and that makes sense. John heard many words right out of Jesus' mouth dealing with love. John himself, when he writes the Gospel of John, which is a different book than 1 John, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, as, as though he's just amazed that even he could be loved by Jesus. Love was transformational for John, and he hits it over and over again here in 1 John. John sounds here very much like Jesus. In one of my favorite statements by Jesus, which we have already hit a couple times in this series, we see him saying this. This is, if we go to the Gospel of John, so maybe you want to keep your finger in 1 John, you can flip to the Gospel of John, 13, 34 through 35. Jesus says this to John and his other close buddies on the night of his betrayal. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So we looked at this a few weeks ago, and we talked about how this is the idea of a love apologetic. Apologetics is the study or the discipline of defending the faith. You can do that in different ways. You could come up with great arguments. You could gather your data. You could look at how archaeology supports the authenticity of the Bible. You could look at all kinds of things. But what John is saying here is there's this other way of defending the faith of Jesus, and that is how we love each other demonstrates to the world that we belong to Jesus, that we are followers of him. So do you want the world to know that Jesus is Lord, that he is Savior, that he's ruling king, that he loves the world and has come to save people out of the world? Do you want the world to know that? You can try to convince them with arguments. Sometimes that'll work. Another way to convince them is to love each other. How are you doing with that love apologetic? The rest of this morning, we're going to be forced to kind of examine ourselves through that. If we go back to 1 John, in uh, verse 12, we will see how John is going to link the opposite of love, which is hate, to the extreme opposite of love, which is murder, He's going to help us understand love by defining the opposite of it. And in order to do this, he's going to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, to the fourth chapter of Genesis. He's going to look at the first two brothers, Cain and Abel, and how Cain murdered his brother Abel. Now, the, the general secular world out there would say that there was no Cain and Abel, there was no Adam and Eve, that we have just we've evolved from apes over millions of years. Now, I believe that's baloney. And John believes that's baloney too. He points back to Cain and Abel and he says, these two guys were real and let's learn something from them. So verse 12, he says, we should not be like Cain, who's not an imaginary guy or just a, a moral lesson. He's a real guy. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one. Quite a strong statement. We're going to talk about the second generation of humans here. And he's saying that Cain is of the evil one. He's, of, he's like a child of the devil. Such strong words. Who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? If you remember the story, you may already know the answer to this. Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. So let's, let's flip all the way back to 
Genesis chapter 4, first book of the Bible, 4, 1 through 8. And let's just read the story here. This is on page 3 if you're in a pew Bible. Now Adam knew Eve his wife. That means he had intercourse with his wife. And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. So two different kinds of farmers here. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. So Cain... The firstborn kills the secondborn. As we read the story, it looks like a a case of jealousy and envy. As John comments on it thousands of years later, he says that Cain was of the evil one. So when Moses is writing Genesis, and he tells us not only that God had no regard for Cain's offering, but he says he had no regard for Cain or his offering. We're getting a bigger glimpse of the picture here. It's not simply that Cain like, brought the wrong offering, but there's a rejection of who Cain is. And John tells us it's because Cain is of the evil one. His, even in the second generation of humans, Satan has gotten a hold of Cain to such a point that what he brings as an offering is rejected by God. And what he, what he hopes placates God actually serves to judge him. Now, if we look in those words of Genesis, we see that there's a difference in the offerings, not just in what's brought, but really in why and how it's brought. So Cain brings, we're told, some of the fruit of the land. Abel, though, brings the first of his flocks and the fat, which was considered the best part. So we see in Abel a prioritization of, of God. So I'm going to bring you the first. I'm going to trust you for my security. I'm going to trust you that you're going to take care of me. The first part, the firstborn of the flock, I'm going to give it to God. Now we see this throughout the Bible. That is the way that we are to bring our offerings to God. We, we take the first part of it. We trust God with the first part of it. We don't just give him what's left over after we've taken care of ourselves. We say, God, you will take care of me. I'm giving it to you. We're not told that Cain did that. We're simply told that Cain brought some of the fruit of the land. And I think that really is the key to understanding those two differences. Because it's not about what was brought. God doesn't need a sheep. God doesn't need a pile of of grain. What's seen in the offering is the direction, the inclination of the hearts. One is trusting God and actually doing something in relation to the trust. The other is really trusting in himself and going through the motions. John picks up on that thousands of years later, and he says, don't be like Cain. You have to assume, be like Abel instead. 
And he doesn't even really talk about the offerings. He talks about what comes after that. Because those little baby steps of obedience or disobedience, they lead to bigger things. And in this case, the bigger thing was murder. Now you think, well, I've never murdered anybody. That's good. But remember how Jesus talked about murder and how he brought it into the same realm of judgment as anger. So if we flip back to the New Testament, we get to Matthew chapter 5, 21 through 22. This is on page 810. Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. This is one of those statements that I wish either Jesus had not actually said, or that somebody just didn't record it for us, right? Because I have been angry with people plenty of times, and I don't want to hear that that makes me liable to judgment. Now, I know Actually, I won't face that judgment because Jesus has forgiven me. He's wiped me clean. I'm adopted into the family of God, right? All of my sins have been taken care of by him. But we need to hear clearly. Jesus is saying anger is a bigger deal than what we think it is, right? It's a big deal like murder. If we go back to 1 John, we're going to get through, chapter 3, verse 13. We're going to get kind of a, a shocking statement here. Now remember, when John's talking about the world, he, he's not talking like about individual people. He's talking about this system that is the broken world around us. He's really talking about a kingdom. You've got the kingdom of God, and you've got the kingdom of this world, or the kingdom of Satan. You're a citizen of one of those two kingdoms. And what he's going to say here might be shocking to us. First John 3, 13. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. You ever been hated by the world? John says, Christian, don't be surprised by that. Don't be caught off guard. Expect the world to hate you. If there really are two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, and they are at war with each other, then it makes sense that if you are in the kingdom of God, then those who are willingly or even unknowingly part of the kingdom of Satan, they will, of course, hate you for some reason. Now, when we live our lives, a lot of the times we don't experience hatred from the world, right? We have to ask ourselves, why is that? Is the world a nicer place than it was when John was reading this? Or are maybe we not so clearly in the kingdom of God that the battle lines are a little fuzzy? If we look at John, the Gospel of John again, chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, Jesus has stuff to say about this because John got all of his greatest stuff from Jesus. He says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. So, like, you're, you're good now, little sheep, he says, but the wolves are going to come. They're going to try to eat you. I don't want you to be scared and fall away. Here's your warning. They will put you out of the synagogues. That would be like the Jewish worship area. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you, he says this to his best buddies, will think he is offering service to God, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you will remember that I told them to you. In other words, I'm warning you ahead of time so that you're not afraid. It's unlikely that any of us in this room are going to be killed because of Jesus' 
as our Lord. But John, who's recording this, is the only one of that group that was not actually killed as a martyr for his faith in Christ. So when Jesus says to them, there's coming a time when those who kill you think they are doing a service to God, he's, he's not just being dramatic there. He's saying, that is coming. I, I think about the, the craziness of what is happening in Afghanistan right now. Right? So not only is this a military embarrassment and disaster, but there are thousands of civilians, American civilians and uh, Afghanistan civilians, who are being systematically hunted down right now. And, and especially those who are identified as Christians. I've read story after story. I've listened to recordings of audio as people are like calling and talking to a pastor or a missionary and saying, look, we are in hiding right now. And if they find us, they are going to kill us because they know we're Christians. They have told us they're coming for us. And when we find you, we're going to kill you. Soldiers are going around. They're looking at people's phones. And if they find a downloaded Bible app on the phone, they kill you on the spot. They don't care who you are. They only care that you belong to Jesus. That is that is so foreign to us in this world right now, but it's happening right now on the other side of the world. And John and Jesus both say, don't be surprised when that happens. And yet it's still, it's still shocking to me. Right? So back to 1 John, chapter 3, verse 14. He's now going to delve into the idea of, sure, of, sure, of assurance. How do we know if we belong to Jesus? Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life. That is, we now have eternal life because we love the brothers. No, he doesn't say, if you love your brothers, then you have eternal life. He's saying, no, it's, it's evidence of your eternal life if you are loving your brothers, your fellow Christians. Whoever does not love abides in death. That is, your, your life is actually in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, I would just add, offer a caveat there. He's not saying anybody who has ever committed murder is doomed to hell. Paul is an excellent example of that. Writer of more books in the New Testament than anybody else, guilty of murder before coming to Christ, and yet he surrenders his life to Christ. He's wiped clean. God completely transforms him. Paul is right now in heaven in glory with the Lord, even though he was guilty of murder and the overseeing of many murders. John here is, is talking about unrepentant murder or unrepentant anger, really. Now, if you've been part of a church, this church, another church for any amount of time, you have been hurt by people in the church. It's true. We hurt each other. Sometimes we even hate each other. You got any hate hiding inside of you? Anything that you've been holding on to for a while? When you Come, come to church and you see somebody and there's that catch inside of you like, I just want to turn around and go the other way. John's giving you a wake-up call. What's going on in your heart? Is, it, is there somebody that you just want to pound or you just want to slander? He says, everyone who hates his brother, he means not flesh and blood brother, spiritual brother, brother in Christ, anyone who hates his brother 
is a murderer or is equal to a murderer. And you know, no murderer has eternal life. He said, this is serious. Don't ignore this. Not only is it killing you on the inside, like it's rotting your soul as you hold on to that anger. He's saying, this is a big deal. So how are we to not hate? What would be the anti-hate? Well, that's, that's love. If we look at 1 John 3.16, we see echoes of John 3.16. By this we know love. All right. How do you know what love is? Here it is. John tells what love is. Here's what it is. By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Remember John 3.16? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Now, the chapters and verses, they're not divinely inspired, but it's just a beautiful coincidence that John 3.16 and 1 John 3.16 piggyback on each other. What is love? Jesus laid down his life. What's love to look like for us? We lay down our lives for our brothers. What would that look like? I mean, that that's big and impressive, and yet Jesus did that, what would that look like for us? John, what do you mean by laying down our lives for our brothers? Do you have any specifics for us? Can you put any flesh on this idea for us? Yes, he can. Verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Well, that's pretty specific, John, and maybe we don't want to actually ask you for those specific helps because what you just said is really challenging. He says, here's how it looks in your life. Christian, if you see a brother or sister in Christ who has a need and you are able to meet that need and yet you refuse to meet that need, he then asks a question. It's a rhetorical question meant to make a point. How does the love of God live in you? Right? Smack. Now, this is not saying let's be communists. This is not saying let's be socialists. It's not saying let's allow the government to steal everything and redistribute it however it wants. That's not what it's saying. It's not saying you got to give to everybody who's in need. It's not saying you got to give to the guy who's begging on the street. That's not what this is saying. This is saying you have a brother or sister assuming that you know this brother or sister who is in need and you have the means to meet that need, then love is meeting that need. And, and if you close your heart, those are John's words, if you close your heart to that brother or sister, he asks, why is it that you think the love of God is living inside of you? Because when the love of God transforms you, it's not just vertical, it's horizontal. You love your brothers and sisters in Christ. He's saying this is all related, and this makes sense to us. But we don't really want to live that way, right? And yet John says this is the way of life. He said, and then I love what he says to the end. He says, don't just love in word or deed. Or in, words are cheap, you guys. Your intentions don't matter. Your words don't matter. It's how you actually love. Are you, are you loving in action? That's what he says. He goes on to verse 18. I'm sorry, we already did verse 18. He goes on to 19. <clears throat> By this we shall know 
that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. So again, there's this idea of assurance. Again, it's not your love for another that earns your acceptance for God, but God has accepted you. He's transformed you. Therefore, you should be loving others. It all works together to assure you. For whenever our heart condemns us, or we might say our, our conscience starts hitting us, God is greater than our hearts. Now, that is really good news. And he knows everything. So not only is he greater, he's more powerful, but he's also all-knowing. So nothing surprises him. When you sin, he's not like, oh, I didn't see that coming. When you decide to hate instead of love, or you close your heart against a brother, he's not surprised by that. And if you are in Christ, you are already forgiven of that. Past, present, future, he knew it all. He washed it all clean. That's just the amazing way that God's love works. Verse 21, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, then we have confidence before God. He's talking about this, um, I don't want this to be interpreted the wrong way, but he's talking about this, kind of, this emotional, this feeling like, I just, I, I am in the love of God. I'm loving my brothers and sisters. I can just, my heart doesn't condemn me. So my heart is good. My heart is comfortable. My heart is, is resting in Christ. It, I just know that I'm assured. That's kind of what he's, what he's talking about there. And yet, it's the actual outward works, the, the loving each other, that make that possible. So, if our hearts does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what He pleases. So here we have one of the keys to the Christian life, or one of the keys to prayer. You and I have wrestled with prayer right? We've asked God for things. He has not done what we asked. We think, if he's going to be our God, if, if I'm going to claim allegiance to him, then he should at least do some of what I asked him to do, right? That's how we kind of think about things. Yeah, John here is laying this out. Okay, we got love for God. We got love for each other. If we are loving each other, if we're loving God, if we're if we're abiding in God, that is, we're growing in holiness, becoming more like Jesus, our desires are changing to be more in line with Jesus. We are, as he says here, um, we're keeping his commandments. We're doing what pleases him. So our lives are living in the way that Jesus wants us to. He says, then ask whatever you want, and Jesus gives it to you. Why? Because it is in line with the will of God, because you are being transformed and you are living in such a way that lines up with love God and love your neighbor. It all goes together and you're, of course, the desires of your heart at that point then are in line with the will of God. And so he's like, great, I'm so glad you're asking that because that's what I want anyway. Let's go. If I say, God, please give me a million dollars. Well, he's not going to do that, right? He's under no obligation to do that. But if I am living in Christ, I'm abiding in Christ, I'm obeying the commands of Christ, I'm loving my neighbor, I'm being transformed in the image of Christ, then it's like, Jesus is like, you should ask whatever you want. God's happy to do it because you're in partnership with him. Verse 23. In case we need a reminder about his commandment. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has 
given us. So this is an echo of Jesus' great commandment, which you've already seen twice in this series. Matthew 22, the enemies of Jesus ask him, what's the greatest commandment? They try to trap him. Matthew 22, verse 37, he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This jives so much with what John is saying in 1 John. It all lines up together. You love God, you love others, everything else is details, right? How can we love God when we are, by nature, sinful enemies of God? Maybe you're asking that today. Maybe you've heard things like, you got to live, you got to abide in Christ, you got to follow his commandments. And you're thinking, there's no way. I can't do that. That's not good news. I have tried. If that's, if that's what's needed, then God's never going to answer my prayers, right? I'm never going to be lined up with the will of God. I've got no idea how to even know God, much less love Him. So look at that, that first part. This is, this is verse 23. This is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Does it just mean that you believe that a guy named Jesus lived? That you end your prayers with in the name of Jesus? Maybe you believe that Jesus was a teacher or a miracle worker. Maybe he even died on the cross. What does it mean to believe in the name of Jesus Christ? It means to put all of your trust, all of your faith in him. The name is symbolic of like all that he is and all that he has accomplished. Right? We talk about somebody has a good name in the community. It doesn't mean that like the name Frank is good. All right? It's that that person has a good reputation because his character, the way that he has lived in the community, everybody respects him. The things that he's done, the things that he's said, they all line up. So when we believe in the name of Jesus. We're putting our faith in who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and how those are in perfect coherence with each other. He's not saying one thing and doing the other. It all comes together in complete integrity. That's what it means to believe in the name of Jesus. So we believe that he existed, yes. We believe that he was a great teacher and a miracle worker and a healer and all those things. We believe that he died not just as a criminal on a Roman cross, but as the Savior of the world in order to forgive all of our sins. We believe that he rose from the dead on the third day, conquering death. And when we believe in the name of Jesus, we are consciously choosing to not believe in our name, our reputation, our goodness, but in his. We're saying, I need you, Lord. I'm at your mercy. Unless you save me, I can't be saved. And so I trust in your name, your reputation, your works, your goodness. I trust in that. And that, friends, is the good news that I want you to hear this morning. Yes, there are, it's a call to obedience. There's a call to walk in faithfulness. There's all of these high standards in 1 John, but it starts with throwing yourself on the mercy of Jesus, who alone can save you. Goodness can't. I hope that's good news for you this morning. So we put this all together. We believe in the name of Jesus that brings our salvation. We are called to love God. So we're reborn and, and our new life is one of love. We're called to love God and we're called to love each other. The last verse that we read says, and by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. 
This is speaking to the truth that when you become a Christian, is when you put all your faith on Christ alone for salvation, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the third member of what we call the Trinity, comes to live inside of you permanently. So this is how you know you abide in God. That the Spirit whom He has given us is in it. So, you become a Christian. Spirit comes to live inside of you. He's transforming you. He's helping you to learn to love God and to love others. He's calling you to, to walk away from the hate and embrace the love. Instead, that is all a work of the Spirit. And as He transforms us, our desires line up with God. Our prayer life becomes one that is actually active and effective because we're asking things that are in line with the will of God. And the thing that sticks out on the outside through all of this is what he said before when he defined what love is. It's the action of generously providing for the needs of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, what does that look like? It could look like all kinds of things. This week, the Booth family, they needed help because Jason, Jason, uh, Daniel and Jessica were so sick and you guys stepped up and you filled the need. You brought the meals. You, you did extra things for them throughout the week. You called and encouraged them. That is love in action. The fact that there are adults downstairs right now teaching and supervising and discipling our young kids is love in action. You guys get to sit here without the distraction of the kids. You get to hear the word of God and be able to think and apply it to your life because they are loving you right now by caring for the kids downstairs. When we go on Wednesday to serve at the school, that is love in action. Now, that's outreach-oriented love, where John is really talking about in-reach-oriented love. When you take your time, take your skill, when you take your finances, when you take whatever it is that you have, and you give that to fill the need of a brother or sister in Christ, you are loving according to what John said. How's that going for you? Is your life characterized by that kind of generous love? When we talk about generosity, we tend to talk about money. John's talking about more than that, right? Are there people, brothers and sisters in Christ around you, who need help? who need a friend, who need wise counsel, who just need a break from the kids, who need something fixed or something replaced. Do you have what they need? Will you give them what you have that they need? And in so doing, will you love your brother and sister in Christ? we do that, the world knows that we belong to Jesus. Not if we say we love each other, but if we actually love each other. Now, that is a challenge, but it's also an invitation. Because if we will grow in that kind of real, tangible love for each other, the joy the peace, the community that will be built within our congregation and those we interact with, 
will be such a blessing to us. We will look back and we will think, and I thought it was a risk to be generous in these ways, but the way that it has paid off was so much worth it. And of course, because that's how the kingdom of God works. It's a family. The more we love each other, the better the family is. Let's pray. Father, uh, man, some of us, it just it seems to come easy. We see a need, we give generously of ourselves to meet that need. And others of us, we're, just, we're so wrapped up in ourselves that when we give of ourselves, it's, it's reluctance, it's out of duty, it's um, maybe a, a stinginess on our part. Lord, would you make us generous in our time and in our treasure and our talents? Lord, I want to ask for the, the people who are listening today, that these words would stick in them. And so that today or tomorrow, sometime this week, I, I want to ask that you would clearly show them where there is a need in the body of Christ that they have the ability to meet partially or in full. I pray then, Lord, that they would embrace that in a joyful way, knowing that this is love, this is not duty, this is not coercion, but this is following the example of our Lord who gave himself for us. Lord, would you bring more of those opportunities to us? Open our eyes to the needs of your saints here and around the world. Make us a more generous, truly loving people. We recognize that we cannot do this without you doing it in us. So we pray that your spirit would empower us. In that. Pray that you would be helping us to uh, discipline ourselves, helping us to uh, prioritize others and your kingdom over ourselves. Do that work in us, Lord, as we sing this last song about yet not I, but Christ in me. Lord, make those things true, not only for our ultimate salvation, Lord, but for all of our growth and the little steps that we need to make. It's not us, it's you working in us. And that we rest and that we have hope. We thank you for your love, pray that you would make us more like yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.